This morning's reading is from Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. That's Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work with my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord so that I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Amen. Leslie Ann, thank you very much.
and come back with me to the summer of 1998. And uh, I, along with um, a group from my church in Tunbridge Wells, we were traveling out to Romania to a boys' home there to do some building work. The, uh, the boys' home was in a, a village just outside of Aradia. Aradia is on the west side of Romania, quite near the Hungarian border. And we had a brilliant two weeks. One evening, we headed into Aradia, into the city, to do some exploring, to find some ice cream. And we were traveling back late that night. And we knew the kind of vague direction of the village, but we couldn't find the road that we needed to get on to, to get us to the village. No Google Maps back then. So we just sort of wiggled our way, trying to find the right direction. We, uh, we ended up turning onto a farm track. And we traveled for about a mile down this bumpy, uneven farm track until we saw by the side of the road some men standing there looking pretty angry and carrying guns, AK-47s. It turned out we'd arrived at the Hungarian border. So now you need to picture the scene. Five Englishmen squeezed into a little English car. They're trying to cross the Romanian-Hungarian border on a farm track at the dead of night. It didn't look good. And understandably, their immediate presumption was that we were up to no good. And our immediate response was we felt guilty. And what followed was this sort of horrible half hour where despite our feeling of guilt, our sense that we must have done something wrong in this situation, we were trying to convince these border guards in patchy German, we didn't speak Romanian or Hungarian, but we had to convince them we were the good guys, that we weren't actually up to no good. There was this funny disconnect between a reality that we knew that we weren't actually doing anything dodgy and yet the guilt that we felt. Now, Romans chapter 6, Steve has helpfully taken us through these verses over the last couple of weeks. Romans 6 presents us with a similar challenge. Paul, as he writes these, these words to Christian believers in Rome, he's declaring great truth to them about who they are, about who we are. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have died to sin. You have been released from the duties of the Old Testament law. You've been given new life in Christ so that you can live as a servant of Jesus. That is Romans 6 and their great truths. And Steve really helpfully last week showed us that it means each of us here today sits in one of two camps. We are all either slaves to sin, still under the Old Testament law with a with a great debt to pay, a debt that we can never actually pay ourselves, so we're enslaved by it, or we're slaves to Christ. We're free from the reign of death and free to serve Christ with our whole of our lives, lives of righteousness. It's either or. But, but that's our Romanian border moment. You, you must have been feeling it, actually. If you were here last week as Steve spoke, you're left thinking, well, which am I? Because these are great truths, free from the law of sin and death. And yet, what does the reality of your life look like? Reality for me is I feel guilty. I guess you do too. We look at the day-to-day mess of our lives and we still see sin. Now, sin's a funny word. But... If I can't even live my life the way I want to live it, live up to my standards, 
then I know for sure that I am falling miles short of the standards of a perfect and holy God. And that's the reality of my life. I fall short again and again. So how am I to read Romans 6? Which side am I on? Slave to sin, still under the law, or slave to Jesus? Free from the law, under the rule of righteousness. And as you start to think about it, you realize it really matters. Have a look with me. Chapter 6, verse 23, right at the end of chapter 6. Just flip back over the page, page 1133. Paul finishes chapter 6 with these words. He says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you hear that and you think, it matters. It really matters. Actually, there's nothing that matters more than working out which of these two camps you are in. And that is why I love Romans chapter 7. These are brilliant, brilliant verses for us this morning. We're going to look at them under just two headings, two questions. Question one, who is to blame for all this mess? And question two, is there any hope? You can follow on the back of the service order if that's a help for you. Let's begin by asking, who is to blame for all this mess? So the ongoing destructive force of sin in my life, whose fault is it? And Paul answers the question in three ways. He begins by saying the law is good, not bad. The law is good, not bad. Because the accusation has come in that Paul seems to think this law, God's law, the law God gave to Moses, that in some way it must be bad that actually all the mess of sin must in some way be the law's fault. After all, Paul just spent time in in chapter 6 saying that Christian believers are free from the law. If you're free from something, surely it's good to be rid of it. So the law must be bad. Follow with me in chapter 7, verse 7, when Paul responds. Romans 7, verse 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was. Had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Now do you hear Paul's answer? Is the law bad? No. No. If I didn't have the law, then I wouldn't have seen my sin. That's what he means when he says, apart from the law, sin was dead. It's not that sin was really dead. It's just that it was dead to him. He had no awareness of his sin. And seeing our sin is a good thing. It's good when we read God's word, the Bible, and it highlights areas of our life when we're not living for God. It's good when we gather in small groups for for seminars and we think about the topic of food and we find it challenging because God is challenging us about our attitude to food. It's good when we think together about the topic of money and God highlights our greed and our selfishness. It doesn't feel good, but actually for the Christian believer who's longing to be more like Jesus, that's a brilliant thing. The law, God's law. No, the, the problem doesn't lie there. The law is good. But sin, verse 8. Did did you see that shift right at the turn of the page? The law is good, verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, 
produced in me every kind of coveting. It's funny, Paul's speaking of sin here as a person. As if this person called sin takes God's law, his good law, and uses it to stir up wrongdoing in our lives. It's this person's sin who seems to be the problem. I mean, it's like the, um, the wet paint sign moment. You'll have had it. You see the sign saying, wet paint, don't touch. And what happens? The problem is not with the sign. The sign is there for our good. It's saying, look, touch this paint, you're going to get messy. Okay, the sign is not the problem. But there is a voice inside. I hope it's not just me. That says, is it really wet? Or has the sign just been up for ages? Or... Who says I can't touch it? I'll touch whatever I want. Leave my fingerprint here for time immemorial. Or, and actually in these verses, there are all kinds of echoes back to the Garden of Eden. But it's a sense of, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? We turn it into a, that God, he is such a spoil sport. And that is the voice of sin. It's a voice we hear every day. And Paul continues verse 9. He's really stepping into Adam and Eve's shoes here. Reading on from verse 9, chapter 7. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. It is such a, a clear verdict at the end there. Three times. The problem is not with the law, but it's with this person, or at least a thing that is pictured as a person called sin. Sin is bad. God's law is good. Profound implications, actually, for us as we approach God's word. Can I trust it? Is it good for me? How do I respond to it when, when it disagrees with what I think? Who do I trust? And then Paul expands this argument further. The, the law is good, not bad. And then he says the law is good for you, not bad for you, which sounds the same, but, but follow it through. Verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me. So the question Paul is responding to here is that this law, if the law is good and yet it brings about death, what happened there? How, how did death come about? Is it as if this good law, somehow I'm allergic to it and so it brought about a deathly reaction in the same way that nuts, I mean nuts are good, I like nuts, but if you're allergic to nuts, nuts can bring about a deathly reaction. So are we allergic to the law? Good law bad reaction. See the argument? Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you've got these three characters. You've got law, sin, and death. They're the three characters of this one-verse drama. And what happens is that sin takes the law and produces death. Picture it this way. You've, you've got a murderer 
you've got a knife and you've got a victim. And the murderer takes the knife and uses it to bring about death for the victim. Now, it's not the knife's fault, is it? We, we don't lock up knives in prison as if the blame lay there. And in the same way, Paul is saying, death, death isn't the law's fault. Don't, don't blame God's word. It's sin. Perhaps this helps. Think about the Garden of Eden. We've been um, studying Genesis in small groups, if you're in small groups. And uh, you will have asked a question. When you see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, it's very easy to think, God, why did you put it there? What, what, what on earth were you doing putting this tree in the middle of the garden? As though the problem lies with God, with his command, rather than the problem lying with Adam and Eve, or at least the person pictured as sin, who used the command, the good command, command given to to preserve life, not to take life. But sin takes the command and uses it to produce death. Now, the problem lies with sin. And that's why verse 14 is such a key verse in this, this chapter. Because at the moment, it sounds as if Paul might be saying, well, the, the mess of this world, the brokenness of my relationship with God, it's not my fault. It's sin's fault. But in verse 14, he begins to bridge the divide between him and sin. Have a look down. Chapter 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Literally here he's saying, I am fleshly. I think maybe that's a better word. I am fleshly, sold as a slave to sin. And the I is really emphasized in the Greek here, that the law is good, but I am a different category. I am fleshly, because I have been bound to sin. And actually, those are surprising words, if you've been here the last couple of weeks. We're not expecting to hear Paul say he's sold as a slave to sin. Because in chapter 6, he's been at such pains to say, look, you're either a slave to sin, or you're a slave to righteousness. It's either or. And and you're thinking, well, surely the apostle Paul, if anyone, he's going to be in the camp of slave to righteousness, so if he's a slave to sin, what, what hope is there for any of us? It's led some people to conclude that Paul here must be speaking about pre-Christian experience. Can't be his Christian experience. But actually what Paul is saying here is, I am fleshly, having been sold under sin. That is, because I have known enslavement to sin, as all human beings have, then that fleshliness remains in me. I'll borrow Steve's analogy from the past couple of weeks. I'm David Beckham. It is the World Cup after all. And David Beckham, um, when Manchester United win the Premier League next season, which they will do, I'm pretty sure a little part of David Beckham will cheer. Now, he doesn't play for Manchester United anymore, but Manchester United is still in his blood. Christian believers are not on the side of sin anymore. And yet fleshliness remains. There is a part of us that still delights in sin. And if we're honest, some days, it's quite a big part of us. Fleshliness is a universal experience of being human. So, so don't blame the law, Paul is saying. 
And actually here, he really homes in on the problem. Verses 15 to 23, he starts to say, look, the problem lies within you. Listen again to these verses. Just ask yourself, did they not describe the experience of your life? Paul writes, verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Do you see how Paul's argument is building here? I know there's a lot of do's and don'ts in all of that. The problem is not with God's law, he's saying. God's law is good, it's good for you. It's not the law that brings death. The problem is with this person, this thing pictured as sin. And because we've all known slavery to sin, we have all experienced slavery to sin. All of humanity has known that condition. The remnants of the sinful life remain in each one of us. And so our fleshliness, our sinfulness, it keeps showing up. Now, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we will hate that. It's like being at the World Cup and you keep scoring your own goal. You hate that. It's the wrong team. But it is the experience of the Christian life. And Paul continues, verse 21, look down with me. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. You hear that, it it makes me want to ask, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do you know that there is a full-blown battle raging inside you? It was a very profound moment for me when I started to grasp that. started to understand the difference between my status, free from law and sin and death. Status, ultimately death has no claim on me now. And yet while we remain in this body, this fleshly body, the battle with sin rages on. It really transforms the way you view life when you get that. It drives me to get up each morning to feed on God's word so that I am equipped to fight this battle. It reminds me of the importance of gathering together with other Christians, Sunday mornings, midweek, small groups, whatever it is, because I need you to help me in this battle. And you need me. We need each other in this battle to remind each other of these truths, to remind each other that we're in a battle, to help each other fight. But perhaps most importantly, it gives me hope. When I see the filth of my sin, my, my response in that moment must not be to pack it all in, to tell myself, well, John, you're on the wrong side here. You must still be a slave to sin. Give up very easy to head down that path. I guess you know that. But we need to hear how Paul 
ends this chapter, our final heading, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Verse 24, Paul writes, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Do you know that question? Have you asked yourself that question? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Well, hear Paul's answer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we need to hear the gospel dynamic here. I love this. The law, the good law, it reminds us of our sin. It's like the sort of UV light that shows up the hidden writing that you couldn't see without. Sin was there all along, but the law shows it up. And as we see our sin, sin that destroys us, sin that leads to death, we cry out for a saviour. We realize we need help. And as we cry out for a saviour, so we rejoice all the more in Jesus. So the law makes us love the Lord, Jesus Christ. It makes us love Jesus all the more. The more I see the sin in my life, the more beautiful, the more brilliant Jesus Christ becomes. Because it, it reminds me of my desperate need for him. So don't let the sight of your sin tear you away from Jesus. You'll know it can do that. Maybe you're feeling that pull right now. You sort of look at your life and think, this is hopeless. I can't do it. I'm a phony. And it leaves a desire to flee. Desperate despair of feeling a hopeless follower of Jesus. Don't let your sin cause you to flee away from him. Let your sin cause you to flee to him. Again and again and again. I want to say that is the pattern of the Christian life. Daily, throwing down the burden of my sin. A burden I cannot bear. But it is a burden he has promised to carry for me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then Paul finishes with these words, just capturing the wrestle of the Christian faith as he finishes this great chapter. He says, so then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. That is, through the work of God's Spirit in me, I am longing to live for him, to obey his word, to live for Jesus. In my mind, I am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. You see, this is normal Christian experience. We're not meant to be content with it. Chapter 6, live for Christ. Live as slaves of righteousness, not, not content with our sinfulness. It's a battle. But we must let our sinfulness cause us to run to Christ. Because it's there that we find his unending grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And it is then that we grasp what a glorious saviour Jesus Christ really is. Why not lead us in prayer that God would do that work in our lives through his spirit. Our God, our Father, 
uh, we look at our lives and our sin is not hidden to us. As we look at your word, it shines like a light on the filth of our lives. And we mourn and we fear. But God, our Father, how we praise you for our sinless Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, as we see our desperate filth, our ongoing sin, please remind us again and again, use us to remind each other of this glorious gospel of grace that we would turn to Christ, that we would cling to Christ, and that together we would learn to live for him. In his name we pray. Amen.